Podcastle, number 25, for September 16th, 2008. Anywhere There's a Game, by Greg Von Eckhout. Hello, this is Rachel Swirsky, Podcastle's editor. I was always the kid picked last for sports teams. I can't really blame the team captains, I'd have picked me last too, so I never really connected with sports. Recently, though, I've started watching skill-based reality television shows. Project Runway, Top Chef, Top Design. It's so cool to watch designers sew dresses out of candy, or teams of chefs compete in relay races to peel oranges, mix mayonnaise, gut gigantic fanged fish more quickly than the other team. The other day, while I was watching a seamstress struggle to weave a jacket out of seat belts, I realized, oh, this is my sports. It's highly talented people marshalling their skills to compete in an artificial arena with rules arbitrated by taste and aesthetics. I'm totally a sports fan for skill-based reality shows. I memorize rosters, root for favorite players, even read through blog posts about the television shows. Today's story is Anywhere There's a Game by escape artist's favorite, Greg Van Eekout, whose first novel, Norse Code, is due out from Bantam in summer 2009. He blogs about life and writing at writingandsnacks.com. Anywhere There's a Game first appeared in Realms of Fantasy. It's read for us by Benjamin Manucheri, a television production student at San Francisco State University, who in a previous incarnation worked for a year in Los Angeles as a stand-up comedian. Links in this introduction are available on our website, podcastle.org. Enjoy the story. Opening tip-off. I got a call from Sports Illustrated yesterday. They're doing one of those sidebar pieces where they ask guys to name their starting five, the best basketball players they ever shared a court with. You don't want that, I told the kid on the phone. I was in the NBA for 17 years. I could tell you about guys like Lon McGee, who wore one pair of sneakers his entire career, held together with tape and glue and sheer willpower. Or Pig Iron Von Ziegler, who smelled like machine oil and whose joints screeched like a stepped-on cat by the end of his career. The best? Who cares about the best? Why settle for the best when I can give you the most remarkable? The kid thanked me politely, but he told me that wasn't what he needed for his piece. He'd talk to his editor, though, and mention my idea to him. He'd get back to me. Well, I'm not going to live forever, and I can't wait for his editor. I've got tales to tell, and I've got to tell them while I'm still kicking. So here it is, my starting five. Not the most talented guys I've ever played with, but instead, the dirt workers, and edge cases, and oddballs, and sideshow escapees. These are the guys that I'll never forget. These are the characters. The Shooting Guard The second day of training camp is always the worst. The first day, the coaches understand. They spent the summer guzzling Maui cocktails and wolfing down steaks the 19th hole, and they're feeling just as fat and lazy as the players. So, day one's full of inspirational speeches and mission statements and trash talk and hazing of the rookies. Fun, but hardly aerobic. By day two, though, guys are fighting to keep their jobs, and it's all running and drills and conditioning. Hard work up in the mountains where the Phoenix Suns held camp. But not for the Hindu. That's what we called him back then, long before the greatest highlight ever. That summer, he was just some scrawny, undrafted Indian shooting guard. Shaven head, quiet, good posture. 
Coach had us doing baseline to baseline sprints, barf drills, he called them, because we'd be running from one end of the court to the other until somebody lost their breakfast on the hardwood. Some years, there'll be a guy who's not at all proud, and he'll yak after three steps just to be a wise ass. Not this year, though. We had a stubborn bunch, and nobody wanted to be first. We must have done 500 laps, and some guys looked pretty green, but nobody was willing to make this sacrificial spill. I sure as hell wasn't willing. I had to prove to the coaches and everyone else that I still had something left, that I could still be a player in this league. The Hindu kid outran us all. After the first minute, he'd already started lapping us. And not just the big oafs like me, but the young, springy guards, too. Twenty minutes in and he was still going at full speed, his little feet pounding the floor like a drum machine. So, okay, fine. He was fresh and speedy and had young legs. But the thing is, he didn't sweat. Not a drop. And he wasn't breathing hard. Everybody breathes hard the second day of training camp. Everybody sweats. And then, by contrast, there was me, stumbling along, near passed out. A decade ago, I'd been the number one overall pick in the NBA draft, fresh off a triumphant NCAA championship. By November of my rookie season, people were comparing me to the greats, the Malones, the McHales, the Garnets, Hall of Famers. I had size, speed, and hunger. I could shoot reliably from the mid-range and had about seven spin moves in the post that would have given Hakeem Olajuwon cross-eyes. But then I had the injuries. Broken thumb on my shooting hand, nagging abdominal strain, lower back spasms, torn MCL. They piled up. And so did the prime rib and vodka martinis. Ten years into my so-called career, when I should have been racking up all-star appearances and MVPs and championship rings, I found myself in Flagstaff, Arizona just trying to make it onto a team roster. And yes, that second day of training camp, the first guy to barf was me. I stood at midcourt, hunched over, hands on my knees, puke on my sneakers, trying to fight off the ten years of tears I felt welling up from my heart. Why was I still doing this? I wasn't a player anymore. I wasn't anybody. The thing to do was go back to the hotel, paw my way through the honor bar till I could get a flight out, go home and stay there for the rest of my life. I heard soft footsteps approach, and I looked into the brown, still acne-dotted face of the Hindu. Oh, you know his name. Lee Sai Baba, the Fakir. He gave me that far-off stare that the league's best defenders would learn to fear, and he said to me, in his painstaking accented English, I can pierce my cheeks with needles. I can sleep on a bed of nails. I can put my hand in boiling water. I can hang from a tree with hooks in my back. If you wish... I could teach you to run 500 laps and not vomit. I must have stared at him a full minute before I could catch enough breath to talk. Yeah, I wheezed. And what do you get out of it? When you rebound the ball, he said, you will pass it to me. I will score. This way, we win many games. Well, you know. I would have just laughed, only I was too tired to laugh. And that's how me, a 10-year broken-down veteran came under the tutelage of a 19-year-old foreign kid. I spent every minute I could with him, on the team bus, at practices, at shoot-arounds. I even asked to have my locker next to his. He talked and talked and talked, and I listened. He knew stuff. He knew stuff about the body, about the mind, about meditation, about pain and pain and pain and how to will it to something smaller that you could set aside and let do its job without breaking you. I made the team that year, and at the end of the season, 
when I went home for the summer, after we got knocked out of the first-round playoffs, I was voted the league's most improved player. My agent was telling me I had a respectable contract extension to look forward to, and I could go a few nights in a row without needing a drink. Five years later, I was there for Lee Sai Baba's last game. You remember it. You've seen the highlight. The greatest highlight ever. Game 7 of the NBA Finals, our son's team against Deffy Thompson's Sixers. The game's tied. Deffy's got the ball with 3.5 seconds left on the clock, so he has to shoot it or we all go into overtime. He fires off his smooth jumper just a little short, and I go up for the rebound along with four enemy jerseys. But I know where the ball's going. I almost always do. Something the Fakir taught me. And my hands grab it, and I pass it to Lisai. He flies. No, not jumps, not sails to the rim a la Jordan. He just flies, arcing through the air across the court. He flies, get it? And when he reaches the basket, he dunks it for the win. You know that old argument? Was his greatest maneuver the flying dunk, or the Indian rope trick he ended his short career with that night, climbing toward the rafters and vanishing from sight in front of the world? You ask me? The answer is neither. In the estimation of this old broken-down power forward, his greatest trick was, well, me. His greatest trick was giving me something I never had, something I'd mixed up with arrogance and then lost sight of altogether. The Fakir's greatest trick was giving me some simple dignity. I don't know where Lee Sai Baba ended up, but when I see him, and I know I will, even if I'm a cricket and he's a king, I'm handing him my championship ring. He didn't stick around long enough to collect his own, and I don't really need mine. The Point Guard Jerry Doyle had eyes that hurt to look at. Blue, clear, bright as diamonds, they seemed to peer into you, through you, beyond you. Whenever we talked, I tried to stare at his chin. During my second year as a pro baller, he was our starting point guard, and he was phenomenal. The point guard is the guy who typically runs the team. His job is to dribble the ball up the court and direct the offense like a traffic cop. He sets up the plays and gets guys into position. He knows where his teammates are, and he knows where his opponents are, and he knows where everyone is going. It's called court vision, and Jerry Doyle had it. We were playing Sacramento when Doyle made the most amazing pass I'd ever seen. I was its lucky recipient. We were running down the floor on a fast break towards our basket, Doyle leading with the ball, me trailing. All Doyle had to do was lob the rock straight up in the air for me to catch and slam down for a guaranteed ESPN highlight. But I slipped on a spot of sweat on the floor, lurching left. It's the kind of small mishap that can ruin the flow of a beautiful play, but Doyle didn't let that happen. Somehow, without turning around, he could tell I'd changed positions, and he adjusted, tossing the ball over his shoulder and right into my hands. After the game, I came up to him. Looking right into his razor stubble, I asked how he'd managed such a beautiful, amazing, no-look pass. I see things, he said. I see a lot. I see where you are and where you're going. I see where you've been. Where I'd been? What the hell was that supposed to mean? I asked him. Look at me, he said, his voice all frosty. Doyle was creeping me out a little, and I told him as much. Look at me, he said again. You really need to. I lifted my gaze and met his eyes. I felt my skin grow warm. My face tingled, and a weird burning headache nestled in my forehead. Don't, I whispered. I see things, he said. You were always big for your age, from the time you were a toddler. People thought you were older than you really were, and had higher expectations of you. Your father played ball. A little bit, but not good enough, and he accumulated empty bottles instead of trophies. He blames you for doing what he couldn't, 
and yet you can never do enough. You support your mother and two sisters, but they'll be gone soon, and all your money and fame can't help them. You'll keep your swagger but lose your heart. Your powerful body, the only thing you could always count on, will start to betray you. So far, you've avoided your father's path. You've done well. Not even a sip. But very soon you'll falter, and you'll begin your long, slow fall. He closed his eyes, and when he opened them again, I looked away. I'm sorry, he said, but I see things. I shoved him into his locker. I wrapped a hand around his throat and pulled back a fist, ready to drive it into his face. He didn't try to resist. He just looked at me, unblinking. I knew I could shatter him. I could dig my thumb in his eyes, blind him, make him stop looking at me. But it wouldn't matter, because it was too late. Because now, whenever I looked in the mirror, I'd see in me what he saw. The day after my mother and sisters died in the rollover accident, in the Cadillac SUV I was so proud to have given Mom, I took my first drink. I played that night, too, scoring 26 points for a win. Jerry Doyle passed me the ball a lot, but all through that game and afterwards, he wouldn't meet my eyes. I guess he found what he saw hard to look at. The center. It's on the books. You can look it up yourself. The biggest man ever to play in the league was center Roman Slezak, the so-called Slovenian monster. He was a hair shy of eight feet tall, but that's only because he wore a crew cut. And he was broad, too. Grown men bounced off him like pinballs off bumpers. Dunking the ball was no harder for him than adjusting a shower head, or it shouldn't have been, given his size and physical ability. Solid muscle. Frightening guy. Inhuman. I played with him his only season, when we were both on a Seattle team going nowhere. It was supposed to be our year. We'd gotten the draft rights to the Slovenian monster, and we planned to ride him all the way to championship glory. But we stank. Everybody blamed Roman, and everybody was right. He was fine in practice. More than fine. He was unstoppable. A force of nature. A devourer of men. But when it came game time, he couldn't do anything. He let himself get pushed all over the court by skinny guys a foot shorter than him. When he caught the ball, it was like someone had clonked him over the head with an anvil. He couldn't decide what to do, and he'd just sit there with a stupid baby face and look like he wanted to cry until the shot clock ran out. After trying everything else they could think of, the coaches called on me to see if I could figure out what Roman's problem was. You're a resident head case, they told me. If anyone can pry open his mind, it's you. It's always nice to feel useful. One day after a late practice, I lay in wait for him. He was always the last one dressed, like he didn't want to strip down around the other guys or something, so I stood quietly outside the locker room. Roman didn't come out, and I passed the time by drinking vodka from my flask. More time, more drink, still no Roman. The monster continued to hide. When I couldn't stand it any longer, I went inside. I found him hunched over in front of his locker like a rock formation, quaking with sobs. Hey, Roman, I whispered, trying not to startle him. He seemed like a nice kid, but so did Lenny and Mice and Men, and I didn't want to end up like something soft and pretty and limp. Come on, dude. Whatever it is, it can't be that bad. I knew from bad. Oh, yeah. Nobody had a life as bad as mine, so if anybody had a right to blubbering, it was me. And cue the violins, thank you. Roman looked up at me, snuffling. I dragged over a folding chair and sat down across from him. I've always been a big man, but next to him, I was a child. Roman, you should talk about it. 
Uh huh, he said, wiping tears with the heel of one mighty paw. It's not good to keep stuff bottled up, man. It starts to get all yellow and infected. And then, whatever's ailing you, it runs out and sickens everything. Your friends, your family, your game. Subtlety. That was me. Eleven, he said, snorking. I waited, but he gave me nothing more. Eleven, I repeated. Hey, is Speedy bugging you? Speedy Taggart, our backup point guard, wore the number eleven on his jersey. He was as good a guy as you'll play with, but if I found out he was doing something to mess up Roman's game, I'd stuff him down the toilet. Roman shook his head. Everything different here. I learn English, but everything different. Everyone asks questions, but manager and agent say talk to nobody. People give me things. Presents, liquor, drugs, girls. Manager and agent say to not get in trouble. Keep low profile. Everybody always looking at me, expecting me to make great play, do great thing, save team. Eleven. Eleven? Eleven. How many strippers did we have for little Elijah Clark's birthday party? Could it have been eleven? No. And Roman wasn't even there for that. He never partied with us. Eleven? I asked, but Roman just cried. I tried to be understanding and sympathetic. Really, I did. For about eight seconds. Then, holy shit, I barked. You baby. You little, you whiner. Don't you get it? You've made it. You've got out of whatever radioactive Slovenian goat hill podunk you came from and climbed all the way to the top, the National Basketball Association. Do you have any idea how many guys would give anything to be where you are now? I didn't have a guaranteed contract that year, and I was a bit sensitive on the matter. Look, baby, our record's 3-16. and 16. We stink. At this rate, we'll be out of playoff contention before the All-Star break, so you get that mammoth chin of yours up and start playing the way you can, or God help me, I'll make you eat your own jockstrap. He looked at me, and his eyes kind of got funny, and I got afraid. Maybe I'd awoken something, which is what the coaches wanted me to do. But they weren't in a room with the monster, and I was. Then his face crumpled. He started sobbing again. Eleven, he said. Only eleven. I got a weird notion. Wait a minute, I said. You're not... He nodded miserably. Eleven. Aw, shit, I said. Aw, no shit. You're eleven. He winced as if slapped. Manager and agent say you don't use bad language, but everyone here use bad language. Everything different. Well, shoot. I felt for the guy. I understood the pressure people put on a kid growing up, practically from the first time he touches a ball. Coaches, business execs, even the people who are supposed to have your back and take care of you. The people who call themselves your friends, your family, your own parents. All right, son, I said putting a hand on his granite slab of a shoulder. Let's take you home. We can get ice cream on the way. Roman rode the bench the rest of the season. I hung out with him as much as I could. We ate a lot of ice cream together. And at the end of the season, when he hugged me goodbye at the airport before heading back to his radioactive goat hill, he nearly squeezed my lungs flat. Quit crying, I told him, doing a bit of blinking myself. Now, when you ask me the best big man I ever played with... I can't say Roman Slezak, and not just because the eight-footer wasn't very good. It's just that he wasn't very big. The power forward. During my first few years in the game, I'd always been a starter. I never gave it much thought, just treated it as though it was my birthright, having been born with talent. When you're young, you tend to take credit for that sort of thing, and you think it'll never go away. 
The old veteran who came off the bench for me was Slow Joe Briggs. A true warhorse. He'd played everywhere. The NBA, the Continental Basketball Association, the Eastern Basketball Alliance, the Carolinas Basketball League, and in more foreign countries than the United Nations got flags. He'd learned stuff overseas that normally didn't apply to basketball, and he was canny enough to apply them. It started during a long road stretch, after a game in which I'd scored 40 points and grabbed 19 rebounds. Coach awarded me the game ball, and I had a sharpie out and was ready to sign it and send it off to a sports memorabilia broker when Slow Joe offered me 500 bucks for it. Why are you so hot for my ball, I asked him. He told me it was for his kids. They were fans, had my posters and shoes and soft drink cans and everything. Slow Joe had something like 17 or 18 children, and he was determined to put each and every one of them through college. So I let the ball go for only 400 bucks. When I gave it to him, he ran a calloused hand across the pebbly surface, petting it as though it were a dog. Good leather, he said before leaving the locker room. Later that night at the hotel, Slow Joe set off the smoke detector in his room. I was sleeping off a long night at the bar and missed all the commotion, but there was talk he'd set fire to a basketball in the bathtub. He denied it, though. With a smudge of soot on his nose, he insisted he'd just been smoking a cigarette to relax. In pregame warm-ups the following day, Slow Joe was driving to the basket with a weird gait, running on the balls of his feet. Just something I learned in Europe, he told me. Wear out the toe, live to no woe. Wear out the heel, ne'er do well. But wear out the ball... You'll live to spend all. I looked down at my own shoes, brand new, because I always broke out a fresh pair for every game. Shrugging, I left Slow Joe alone as he dragged and scuffed his feet down the floor. My shot seemed to be off that night, and my energy not so good. Midway through the second quarter, Coach put Slow Joe in for me, and I didn't get back off the bench until garbage time in the last few minutes of the match. Later, I spotted Slow Joe talking to one of the arena maintenance workers, There was a handshake exchange, smooth as bribing a maitre d', and the worker cut down one of the nets and gave it to Slow Joe. Another souvenir for the kids? I asked him. He hesitated, the limp net in his hands. Then, basketball is a game of fundamentals, he said. It's about leather and wood and rope, all in contact with flesh. When talent fails you, you gotta go to the fundamentals. On the flight to our next game, I watched him painstakingly untie the net and then retie it muttering dark and low in his deep rumble. Slow Joe could do nothing wrong the next night. He dunked, he sank shots from long distance, he made teardrops and rainbows and finger rolls, he blocked, he rebounded, he threaded passes through the tightest seams, he did two-handed reverse stuffs, he did the tomahawk jam. He was out there doing globetrotter stick, and it went on like that for most of the road trip. Coach knocked on my hotel room door. We're going to try Slow Joe in the starting spot, he informed me. He's playing phenomenally, and I want to get the most out of him before his energy gives out. Besides, he said, smelling my breath, the extra minutes on the bench might give you time to sleep it off. I felt my cheeks burning, but I was too stupid to know if it was from anger or shame. It's not right, coach. Slow Joe, he cheated. He's been doing spells and shit. It ain't basketball he's good at. It's voodoo. Coach just shrugged. Whatever it is, it's working. Maybe you should try some voodoo of your own. He turned his back and left me alone with the little bottles in the honor bar. For the next few weeks, I watched Slow Joe work. He collected shoelaces from guys who were having good games. He bought more game balls. He took to touching the northern maple of the floors we played on, 
Weird smells came from his locker, and slow Joe Briggs got better and better while I languished on the bench. The final straw was when I got a DNP in the stat sheet. I did not play. Coach's decision. It wasn't that I was sick or injured. It's just that I wasn't needed. I had a rule. No drinks before games. After games or on days off or during the offseason, it was a different story. But before a game, I was sober as a referee. But if I wasn't going to play, why bother staying sharp, right? About 20 minutes before tip-off in a game against the Knicks, I reached into my gym bag and unscrewed the cap off a new silver flask decorated with my jersey number and diamonds. Solemn as the Pope, I raised it to the sky and took my very first pregame drink. I watched the first half of the game go by in a haze. We were losing, but not because of Slow Joe's lack of mojo. His newest trick was making bank shots from half court, which he'd done three times so far. When Coach put me in to give Slow Joe a quick breather, I just wanted to get my few minutes of play over with and get back to the hotel with its bar and all its pretty bottles. But something happened. Stepping out on the court drunk, the game looked different. My muscles worked different. I'd always been a good player, but that night things came without effort. I stole balls from crafty point guards and swatted away layup attempts from big men. I did crossover moves that broke my defender's ankles. I was making shots like a Vegas billiards hustler. Even with the way Slow Joe had been playing, there was no way Coach could take me out of the game. And I topped my performance the next night, and the one after that, and the one after that. I became a true believer in the magic of the pre-game vodka. When Coach came to my hotel room again, he told me I had my starting spot back. Yeah, no shit, I said to him. Then I shut the door and had a celebratory drink. Slow Joe walked across the floor towards me at morning practice, taking his time like an advancing glacier. I bounced the ball and tried to look nonchalant. Congrats, youngster, he said when he got to me. You've been playing well. You deserve to start. Really? No hard feelings? Nah, he said. The starting spot's yours. You won your job back fair and square. Me? I thought I had good magic, stuff that I believed in. But you, you found a magic you believe in even more. I tossed him the ball. You're not going to try some stronger voodoo? He looked at the ball in his hands, turning it around and around. Some magic's just not worth the price, he said, tossing the ball back to me. But I expect you'll learn that for yourself soon enough. As he walked away from me, I wasn't really thinking about what he said. What I was thinking about were the magic little bottles waiting for me back at the hotel. The Small Forward In my last year of professional ball, I wasn't even playing in the National Basketball Association. Instead, I was lacing up my sneakers for the Miners' Albuquerque Mirage, home to has-beens, never-wills, and a couple of maybe-somedays. Malitha Cromwell was one of those maybe-somedays. Though undersized for a small forward, she had enough speed and hops and basketball IQ to make up for it, not to mention the strongest will to win of anyone I'd ever known. If she'd been bored Maxwell or Marcus or Melvin Cromwell, we'd be talking about her now, along with Magic and Bird and LeBron. One night, late in the season, after we'd won a game that had gone into triple overtime, she caught up to me as I moaned and winced my way onto the team bus, a bag of ice bandaged to my shoulder. That was pretty much my post-game routine this late in my career. Why do you do it, she asked, draped over the seat in front of me. She settled in, turning the baseball cap affixed to her shoulder-length cornrows backwards. You've played 17 years. You made your money. You got your championship ring. You've got nothing left to prove. Why keep punishing your body like this in the bush leagues? 
I guess I could have given her the real answer, that I was still playing because a Hindu fakir shooting guard had saved my life, but I was still terrified of the thing a blue-eyed point guard had seen in me a long time ago. If I kept playing, I felt I could beat that thing into submission. But once I finally hung up my sneakers, how long would it take before I replaced the hardwood of a basketball floor with the brass and polish of a hotel bar? I might still get called up for a 10-day NBA contract, I told her, and a guy can never have enough money. She didn't like that answer. Maybe because it was greedy, or maybe because she knew it was a lie. I'll never know. What about you, I said, turning tables. You could be a star in the women's league, but here you are on a bus to El Paso that smells like a sock, putting up with guys coming on to you, flashing you their goods, calling you every name in the book. Why do you do it? Some of the hazing had stopped once I made an example of Blue Bobby Douglas and pounded his gut in, and there was even less of it after Melitha broke Donnie Scud's nose. But you couldn't get rid of all of it. Maybe not ever. She looked out the window at the passing darkness, the desert stars so thick you could believe they'd been smeared across the sky with a putty knife. She had her reasons, maybe things that were hard to put into words, maybe dark things that only a freaky-eyed point guard with court vision could see. She gave me the condensed version. I'm going to play in the NBA someday, she said. I'm going to be the one who makes it. Until then, I'll play anywhere there's a game. Well, maybe she would at that but I decided to give her a little nudge. Your game's here in the waste bins, I said. Down here, you're playing boys. But you go up to the association, and it's a different world. There you're talking about men. Her face went real calm and a little scary. Big fella, she said. I hope you do get that 10-day contract. I hope you get signed for a whole season. Hell, for a multi-year deal. And I hope you can still hump down the length of a court, because when I make it, and I will... I'm going to school your ass like you was in second grade. Looking back, I wish I hadn't said the things I said to her. I wish I'd been one of those who just cheered her along. You collect a lot of regrets in 17 years, and what I said to her that night is one of my bigger ones. At about 4 a.m., 60 miles west of El Paso, our driver fell asleep at the wheel and flipped the bus. I don't remember much, just a sense of falling, weightlessness, and then crashing back to earth. I was okay. I'd taken harder spills in games. But Malitha hit her head bad on the ceiling. I did mouth-to-mouth and CPR on her until an ambulance finally made it out to the boonies. But I knew from the second I started, it was no good. I'd seen dead people before. The newspaper stories all quoted Coach, who said she looked peaceful, content, as if she'd just gone to sleep. I didn't think so. I think she looked pissed off. That's a better legacy for Melitha Cromwell, and that's what I wrote in my letter to her folks, up late in my room, drinking ginger ale. Three nights later, we were in Little Rock, Arkansas, scrapping for our playoff lives. At the end of the first half, we lagged behind by 32 points, and our season looked to be over. None of us cared. None of us had the heart to play, me included. In the locker room during the break, Coach mumbled through some coach stuff about tightening our defense, moving the ball better, taking smarter shots, blah, 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 when Melitha walked in. Her face was gray, and she moved with a limp. Her head lolled a bit left, and she smelled like a hospital. Jesus, Melitha, Donnie Scud said. You, you really shouldn't be here. Shut up, I told him. But man, oh man, will you just look at her? She ain't with the living no more. Jesus, she's de- 
Shut up, I said again. Don't you tell her that. You don't tell her nothing. I'm coming in the game, Melitha said to Coach, her voice like the blackness at the bottom of a well. What could Coach do? We were losing. We were as good as dead. He put her in with three minutes to go in the third quarter. I'd like to tell you Melitha played brilliantly that night. I'd like to tell you she lit our fires and got us back into the fight and hit a buzzer-beating shot that clinched us the game. I'd like to tell you she lit our fires. I'd like to tell you Melitha played brilliantly that night. I'd like to tell you she lit our fires and got us back into the fight and hit a buzzer-beating shot that clinched us the game. But try as she might, Melitha didn't really have it going. I'll believe almost anything, but I don't believe in miracles. After the loss, I found her a ways down the dark road, walking away from the arena. You want to know what I learned in 17 years? I said, pulling up even with her. She mumbled something I couldn't make out. Her mouth wasn't working so good. I went on anyway. I learned you don't play this game against the other squad. You only play yourself. And the game? The game isn't even really basketball. You sound like a shoe commercial, she rasped. I laughed a little, as much as I could. You did good tonight, Melitha. You did yourself proud. Old man, she said, talking slowly, trying hard to make herself understood. When you're done with the game, you come look me up. Just you and me, one-on-one. You make sure you find me any way you can, and then I'm going to school your fat ass. I watched her go down that black strip of highway, a thin shadow under the moon, getting smaller and smaller in the distance until she faded from my sight. Anywhere there's a game, I said. Then I shoved my hands in my pockets and went to find the bus. I knew it'd be idling in the night, puffing out diesel fumes, ready to take me to the next city, to the next court. Anywhere there's a game. Episode number 22, Cat Rambo's Dead Girl's Wedding March, about, well, a dead girl and her rodent lover, didn't enthuse a lot of commenters. On the blog, Little Otis said, Why is it that every really great story ends just when it's getting good? Most other commenters agreed. They enjoyed the setting and the characters, but the ending left them cold or felt like not an ending somehow. Bing Orange said, This is a world that I want to spend weeks reading about, and all I got was the second last chapter. Dissenter David said, Interesting story. Always nice to see love bring down the house, or kingdom as the case may be. Sentiments on the board were much the same, though MacArthurbug, bucking the trend, said, I actually liked the ending. It was the everything else I disliked. The board conversation started a discussion about the meaning and usefulness of meh as a comment on a story. It got split off into its own thread because it's a topic worth considering on its own. If you've got some thoughts on the topic, come on over and join the conversation at forum.escapeartist.info. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. 
You can discuss this episode of PodCastle or nearly anything else on our forums. Just visit forum.escapeartist.info. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend or post to your blog about it or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. Stephen Dunn said, Perhaps basketball and poetry have just a few things in common, but the most important is the possibility of transcendence.